And so we're in the middle of this series called The Way as we walk through uh, with Jesus as he is kind of going through hostile territory. And so last week, we uh, heard the story of the Good Samaritan, the familiar story retold and and reexamined. And at the close of that, uh, he had said, go and do likewise. The, The instruction to those listening was to do, go and do. And and so then we pick up the story here after he said, go and do likewise. In Luke chapter 10, verse 38, we'll put it up for you. Read along with me. It says, now as they went on their way, he, Jesus, entered a village. And a woman named Martha received him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, and one thing is needful. Mary has chosen the good portion which shall not be taken away from her. Now I read you that after telling you about the Good Samaritan because this is a whiplash of transition as you read through the larger text, you get this idea that Jesus is saying, do, do, do. In the stories we've been reading, Jesus feeds 5,000, he's rescuing the injured. We get this incredible parable about somebody who went and activated and did. Go and do likewise. And then Martha, doing things, is essentially being scolded by Jesus. And so the whiplash is, he's, he's told me to do, and now we're doing, and you say, stop doing and be. And which is it, Jesus? Mary is being exalted for not doing And so while Martha works hard to whip up dinner, Mary just sits at Jesus' feet, and you would think, Jesus goes, look, I keep saying do, it's time to do, come on, Mary, get up and do, and instead he says, Mary's got it figured out, and Martha, you you got to get in Mary's place. This is hard for us because so much of the Bible feels epic. It's wars and miracles, it's battles, it's resurrection, it's one epic story after another, seas are parting and floods, and the whole thing, you go, gosh, this is incredible. And then you read this story of Martha and Mary, and what you recognize is this is absolutely mundane. And so it's easy to skip it, actually. It's easy to take a a 30,000-foot view and go, okay, be more like Mary, less like Martha. Okay, I get it. And then keep moving because it's just mundane. It's the daily tasks. She's preparing dinner. It's simple. And at times what we expect from the Bible is the same thing that we expect from uh, life in general. We want life to feel epic and to feel important and to feel monumental, And the internet, the social media world we live in, fuels that because everything has to be epic because that's the only thing that now gets our attention. And so you wake up in the morning and you see a political ad coming out of Washington, D.C., and either it invigorates you or causes you to seethe based on who it is and what you're thinking. Ooh, that Washington, D.C. is now in your life. And then you see a hilarious video of somebody's kid just doing the cutest thing, and you can't wait to tell them, and you harden like, and you emoji face it and all you do all the things because it's so adorable and that's coming from your friend in california who you used to know but you're still connected because isn't the internet great so you go isn't that incredible it's hilarious and then you scroll a little bit further and you're getting you're getting out of the idea that you know these people and then somebody posts a video of that panda in china that fell off the log into the snow and you love that panda from china and so now you have washington dc and california and china and they've given you the highlight reel of all the most incredible epic things of the day and then we're numbed a little bit And the sneaky danger of life today is we're all numbed a little bit, but then we're numbed a little bit because as we take in the worldwide highlights of everything happening around us, the story that your spouse or your child is telling isn't all that interesting. 
And you try not to look disinterested as you nod and go, uh-huh. And in the back of your mind, like some sort of black and white cartoon, you're just seeing that panda fall off the log over and over. And you go, uh-huh, that's great, honey. What happens is the simple and the daily become overlooked because we live in the world of the epic. And there's a spiritual component to this. As, as you and I have only so much heart space and only so much relational space, we see that there was an explosion in Beirut. You watch all the different angles and what are the theories and what really happened and what's the results. And then there's a hurricane coming and then another hurricane coming and then there's COVID or is there? And what it does to us is in a spiritual way, it distracts us in a Martha-type environment. We find ourselves distracted by all of the things happening around the world. And sometimes we get to the end of the day and we didn't think to pray for or cultivate our neighbor in sleepy little frozen swamp Bowling Green. We're so distracted by the big things in our world that we miss the important things in our own homes. And and so the question being asked by this mundane story about this daily ritual, about this simple thing, the question being asked is, what if the little things are really what matters overall? I'm going to have Jackie in a minute put up a video of uh, one of my favorite basketball coaches, one of the greatest basketball coaches of all time by any stretch or measure. But one of my favorite basketball coaches is, is Greg Popovich for the San Antonio Spurs no nonsense, he's gruff, he's not real nice to reporters, but what he, what he is, is is honest with his players, famously hard on even the best players, and so uh, as will sometimes happen when you're watching sports, they put a microphone on the coach and then they later cut it into a, a little clip tape, and so I want to have Jackie play this, watch this with me. You got to have, you know, the guard got to have low hands, the big guy one low, one high, we got to try to get some deflections on that. Good foul, Maddie. Good foul, Maddie. Good foul, Maddie. Good job. Smart play. Moving the basketball fine. You know, but remember those passes. Those passes are just as important as the shot. Bad pass, bad shot. Off the bat, jump on it. Don't wait to compete. Compete right now like you're 10 down. Everybody keep boarding, but don't stop the pace coming back the other way. You know, and throw it ahead once, you know, throw it ahead to that guy because somebody else is going to open up as they adjust to it. What does that have to do with Martha and Mary? Not a single mention of a highlight reel play, not a single instruction to jump higher or dunk harder. It was all about little things. All the clips you can find of him in any huddle ever are about the little things. The pass is more, it's is just as important as the shot, bad pass, bad shot. It's about the pass. The thing that no one will remember after the game. Who made the pass that led to the pass that led to the pass that led to the basket? He cheers for somebody who had a good foul. A foul is not something you want, and yet he goes, good foul. That's a great foul. What he's instructing people to do, these millionaire, top of their uh, sport athletes to do, is compete, try hard rebound, do the dirty work, push the pace, show grit, all the things that never would make a highlight reel. That is the anti-highlight reel. Nothing interesting happened. In fact, nothing interesting was talked about. But what wins in basketball, and I would argue what wins in life, is not highlight reel dunks and last second shots. What wins is practice and details and fundamentals and the simple things and the daily life and the daily ritual and the organizational way that we look at the world That will dictate who we are as people. The best coaches, and I would say the best rabbis, they know this. 
and they have to constantly remind us the pass matters as much as the shot. Push the pace. Compete. Trials reveal your character, but your character is made in life's mundane moments. Trials reveal your character. You go through something hard, it reveals who you really are, but your character is actually made in the mundane moments. Your character is not made in the height of your greatest trial. It's made on the Tuesday afternoon that's just like all the others. The way you live on that nondescript weekday is what forms you. It's what gets revealed then in crunch time. So Jesus sits down for dinner, no big deal. And the camera zooms in on Jesus as he has his team around him. And Mary is sitting at the feet of her rabbi and Martha is preparing a feast for a king, right? Juxtapose those two things. Mary is sitting at the feet of her rabbi. Martha's pre- she's preparing the feast for the king. And we would go, man, Martha figured it out. And Martha gets the rebuke from Jesus. What we're eventually going to ask is, what does it mean to sit at Jesus' feet? But, but first, before we, we go further, note one thing. Martha is deeply loved. So if you get to the end of today and you go, gosh, I'm a little bit more Martha than I realized, you are deeply loved. Even in the, the text, it says Martha, Martha. Jesus uses her name twice. We talk about this sometimes as Semitic language. It's a double, uh, a double emphasis. It increases emphasis. It increases significance of what he's about to say. And Jesus, when he uses a, a double, Martha, Martha, It's often used with great sadness, but it's always used with deep love. So when he's on the cross and says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When he looks out over Jerusalem and he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, why must you kill your prophets? When David in the Old Testament loses his son, Absalom, my son, my son, What you see when a Jewish speaker uses that repetitive language is there's some deep heart moment happening. Jesus has a deep, deep heart moment with Martha. 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 He's counseling her out of a deep love. And so as we find our own Martha exposed, remember, you're being counseled out of a deep love. Most of us have Martha seasons. We have a season, a week, a day, a month, a year. Some of us are living Martha lives and we've never actually had it pointed out. She is busy. Nothing wrong with busyness. She's busy with ministry. Nothing wrong with ministry. But Jesus makes a point of contrasting what she's doing in her busyness with what Mary's doing sitting at his feet. And so the question now is how do you know you're in a Martha season? How do you recognize Martha in yourself? Tim Keller in 1997 preached a sermon and asked this question and then laid out these three principles, and I was like, those are beautiful. I'm not going to remake those. So we're going to take his three principles and make them current for us today. The first one, he says, identifier number one that you might be a Martha or you might have a Martha tendency today is you have inner turmoil. You have inner turmoil. He, he looks at Martha, Jesus says, and he says, you are anxious and troubled about many things. You have inner turmoil. The word for anxious there means to be torn into many directions. The word for troubled means like a ship that's about to capsize in stormy seas. These are the images that are coming up as Jesus says, you are anxious and troubled about many things. I I like to cook. Cooking is fun for me. It's creative. It's a release in many ways. And the thing about cooking is you can't really do a lot of other things while you're cooking. Otherwise, you ruin what you're cooking. It's hard to multitask and cook which is why cooking is often so hard because the hardest thing about cooking isn't do I turn the oven to the right temperature and put the thing in for the right amount of time. The the, the challenge about making a dinner, like a real actual multifaceted dinner, is having everything come out at the right time. It's the timing of it. 
Anybody who's ever been part of making a Thanksgiving dinner? Thanksgiving's right around the corner. Sorry, it's true. Have you ever tried to make Thanksgiving dinner? And there's like 17 sides, and don't forget the rolls, and these three pies are in right now, but they got to come out. And the turkey, don't leave the turkey too long, otherwise it'll be dry. But if you cut it out too early, it won't be taste. And you do the whole thing, and you just, the whole day is just blown. And because you're, all you're thinking about is the timing of the food, the timing of the food. That's why it's hard. It's hard to multitask and get all the different things right because there's too many things to juggle at once. Either, if you're going to do Thanksgiving as the example, either you ignore all the people you love who you've invited over to your house to have Thanksgiving with you, so you can get the meal right, or you ruin the meal and enjoy the people. It's kind of like, it feels like an either or. And so the families that have figured this out go, everybody just bring one thing that's already done and I'll only worry about turkey and we'll be good. It's the pinnacle of kind of Martha meal prep. When someone cooks for eight straight hours, they don't get to enjoy the people around them because you have to focus on the one thing. What you feel in that moment as the green bean casserole needs to come out, but the rolls need to go in, but which one is the pie that we need now, and which one is the pie that you can't have because it's gluten this, and, and as you start getting that, you feel torn and tossed up being taken in so many different directions. And we wonder why there's arguments at the Thanksgiving dinner table. Do you ever feel that way in your daily life? Like every day of your life is sort of making Thanksgiving dinner, and you're trying to keep all the plates spinning, you're trying to keep all the different threads going, and you're trying to get them all to meet in the right spot, and it never quite feels like it gets there. And the only way you can get it there is by ignoring the people you love or dismissing the things that you're supposed to be actually worrying about and and just focusing on the things you're doing. You feel like you may be troubled and anxious. Maybe you have a little bit of Martha happening. Now, identifier number two, you are irritable. I had never considered this when I hear the way that Martha talks to Jesus. She's irritated. Jesus, tell her to help me, is what she says. She looks at the Savior of the world, the creator of the universe, and she goes, hey, seriously, tell her to help me in here. She's a little snappy. I know when this is me. My children know when this is me too. When I'm short with my kids, I I am long-suffering by nature. When I'm short with my kids, I know it's only about me. It has nothing to do with them. And it's usually when I'm expecting an 8-year-old and an 11-year-old to take on an adult task with an adult expediency and adult excellence. And then they don't do it because they're 8 and 11. They don't do adulting right. And then I'm irritated with them. What's your problem? Why don't you do the thing? Bella, you're 11. You should be driving better than this, you know, and I'm I'm texting in the side. It's a problem. Why am I short with my kids? It's not about them. It's not that they failed to do the adult task I gave them in the right amount. It's the, there's something wrong with me. I'm irritable. Why can't you do the thing I asked you to do? We do this with our friends and spouses. We do this with drive through workers. Not very often, but occasionally we do it with our pastors. It happens when someone is getting in the way of our life being just the way we want it to be. Because we're juggling too many things. We're doing too many things. we got too many things going on. And because of the too much, when the one thing falls short, it's got to be somebody's fault. Jesus, tell her to come and help me. We're irritable on the outside because we're living with disharmony on the inside. It's almost always true. There are times, allow for it, there are times when something on the outside is legitimately irritating and you can let that go. But almost always, When we are irritated on the outside, it's because there's disharmony on the inside, and that shortness with others begins to seep into what becomes our most important relationship, which is identifier number three. So on occasion, we find ourselves becoming suspicious of God. We become suspicious or unsatisfied with God. Martha looks at Jesus and says, Lord, 
don't you even care? Her Messiah, she knows. And she says, don't you even care? Tell her to come help me in the kitchen. Don't you care, Jesus? If you've lived long enough and you've been through enough seasons, you've had that moment where you go, God, are you even there? God, are you even listening? God, do you even care? That's a deeply human statement that she makes. But essentially what she's asking Jesus is, what is wrong with you? She's suspicious of his motives. But listen to Jesus and his response. He says, I gave you one thing. One thing. Jesus essentially looks at her and says, I'm never going to give you more than you could do in a day. And so your anger is now displaced. Your anger, you got to be careful where that's coming from. So he's looking at Martha and she's racked within her turmoil and she's irritable and torn up on the inside and she's lashing out. And worse, she's mad at Jesus because he's not bending to help her solve her problems that she created. She's mad at Jesus because he's not bending his life to help her solve the problems she created. Jesus saying there's one thing, Mary chose it, there's one thing and you created so much busyness and now you want me to bend my life to serve your created need. It's as if Jesus sits back and goes, Mary, soup would have been fine and you've busied yourself with a five-course meal. Soup would have been fine. The question he asks under the surface that isn't in the text, so take it or leave it, because it's not straight from the scripture, but it's what I hear when I hear him asking these questions of her, when I hear him scolding her, what I hear him saying is, Martha, are you serving me or are you serving you? Because I was satisfied with less and you're irritated because I wouldn't help you with more. So, so who are you serving, really? The question for us as the church is, where is that us? With our family or our friends, with our spouse or our children, with our Savior and King? Where is it that we're frustrated that somebody won't get on our page and our agenda of more when really less is required? Where are we dry aging steaks when soup is all that's been requested? Ah, we start feeling that pain and we start looking through our own life and we go, oh man, I got this area and man, that was probably what happened last week on Wednesday. Okay, that makes more sense. And so the question you would ask is, what, then what do I do? What do I do? Which is ironic because I just said it's not about doing, but now you want to know what do I do to make it better? That's actually a good question. So we learn, like Mary, then to sit at Jesus' feet. What does Mary do? Mary sits at his feet. And what does that mean, you ask? I heard you. I, what does that mean? I'm glad you asked. It's a formal idea in Jewish culture. To sit at someone's feet means to be under their authority. You'll see it in the book of Acts if you read forward a little bit. What you see is that they, the, the new Christians all collected their belongings, their possessions, their, their money, and they, they put it at the feet of the apostles, the scripture says. Which means what? They submitted all of their resources to the greater good and the greater kingdom efforts. They submitted they put the money at, at their feet. It's beautiful. It, it, them doing that, or Mary sitting at Jesus' feet, it's an indication of an ownership switch. I put this at your feet. It's not mine, it's yours. Mary sits at Jesus' feet, and what she's saying is, I'm not mine, I'm yours. Giving ownership to something is beautiful. It brings other beautiful benefits as well, but when you think about it, the only way you get to the depth of somebody is to submit to them. The only way you get into the depth of somebody is to submit to them. You can't see depth from top down. You have to get to the bottom to get to the depth, don't you? It's a really beautiful metaphor that Mary sits at his feet and she gets the depth of what's happening here. 
You could see the top of the ocean from a plane, but to understand what's really at the depth of the ocean, you have to get under it. And that's what Mary's doing. Have you ever watched a movie or your favorite show? You've seen it enough times, and you, you start seeing things that no one else would see on their first time watching it, but you get it. You get the inside joke, and you get the third thing, and you get the little thing in the background that no one else sees because you've seen it so many times. You know the one you're thinking of right now. Or you heard a song and you recognize that your favorite part of the song, but only on like your 12th listen, you're like, oh, did you hear this thing in the song? It's so beautiful. Wouldn't have heard it the first time, but you heard it so many times now you get it on a new level or even sports. You sit with somebody and they're watching sports and all they talk about is what's happening on the weak side. And you're like, what are you even talking about the weak side? But, but they've watched so much sports that they don't even watch the ball anymore. They're watching other things happening. And as that unfolds, they, they see a whole different thing than you see because all they do is watch sports. Maybe most intimately, have you ever grown to love someone over time? And you find yourself loving them more as they become more known to you? This is why love that lasts is so beautiful to us. It's why when my wife and I see the octogenarian couple in our neighborhood walking at a snail's pace but holding hands every single day, we go, that's what we want. To be hunched over and real slow about it, to wear your mismatched, overly white tennis shoes with your culottes. And your, you know, and you, you're like, that's what you want? Like my 11-year-old says, old people love is weird. And she's talking about us. <laughs> you guys say weird things to each other. What's that about? Because what does she know about love? She knows what she's seen on television. She knows that love is about youthful attractiveness and exuberance. And, and, and what you learn that love is about over the years is love is something different. Love is this beautiful submission and learning the depths of another That's what it means to sit at someone's feet, is to willingly submit your life to knowing them truly, to understanding them. And as you get to that deeper and deeper place, you find you love them more and more. And that depth reveals beauty, but it requires two. It requires a mutual submission. It doesn't work if one does it. Both have to submit. Later in the Gospels, there's this beautiful thing where Mary, the same Mary, she washes Jesus' feet with incredibly expensive perfume and then she uses her hair to scrub his feet and then begin to dry off the perfume. Everyone in the room is horrified when she does this. It's such a waste of resources, they say. And Jesus says, don't bother her. Don't you know she's preparing me for burial? And it's this beautiful moment because everyone in the room is confused because what in the world is she doing? What is Mary doing? Peter says, no way, that's not happening. You're not going to die. Over and over, Jesus predicts his own death in the scriptures, and they never get it, but Mary gets it. As the room erupted in protest, as, as you get that picture in your mind's eyes, everybody going, what are you doing, Mary? And she's using her hair to wash the feet of Jesus. Jesus goes, she's preparing me for burial. She was potentially the only person on earth who actually knew what was happening. Everybody else was confused, was adamant, this is not, no, no, Jesus, no cross, not you. And she knew, and so she gave her most precious thing and prepared him for burial. Maybe Mary was the only person who really got it. Why? She sat at his feet. She spent time at his feet. She listened. She submitted. She chose the good portion. Mary filtered the world through Jesus. And we all know, you've heard this before, that the, everybody else was looking for the Messiah who was the political conqueror and the, the powerful and the mighty. They were looking for one to overthrow the government. Mary wasn't looking for that. They were reading the culture. They were reading Jesus through a cultural filter. 
for the first century Jewish filter. And she was reading the whole thing through a Jesus filter. As she sat at his feet, she got it first. And they missed him. They knew the scripture intellectually, but she had submitted to it. And as she submitted to it and she got the depth of it, she understood. So begin to apply this. What does this look like for you and me? You cannot run Jesus through a 2020 filter. You have to do it the other way around. You cannot run Jesus through a 2020 filter. I laugh. I get, I get all the emails. I got the email about Jesus. Um, what would Jesus, would Jesus wear a mask? And this is going to shock you in a divided America. There's two opinions on this. One, Jesus would absolutely wear a mask. Two, Jesus cares about your religious freedom and never wear a mask. So Jesus is both anti-mask and pro-mask. I also got uh, multiple messages about uh, many other things related to all the different things happening in our world. And all of them have Jesus as the center and Jesus taking a side. Do I believe that Jesus probably has some opinions? Yes. Do I know what they are? No, I have no idea. I don't think he probably has an opinion on online learning or masks or whatever the latest nuanced political mudslinging might have been. I don't know that I can fully understand that. But when I'm Martha, I race around and I try to figure it out and I try to conquer life and I try to control the world around us and Jesus becomes another tool I use. And so I try to do this Jesus filtering thing, but I do it only after I get through. It's 2020. Okay, so if Jesus was here, okay, Jesus is Jewish, but he's in Ohio. Okay, pandemic. Um, Jesus, what did he say? And you start looking for like, well, he did tell that Samaritan woman this, or he did at the, at the well, he said this. And so that must have, you take the well and then you apply that to this thing. And, and you're doing all this gymnastics and you're like, wait, 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 you're flipping it. You have to start with Jesus. Otherwise we find ourselves bending Jesus to help us. And so when I get the email, I see Jesus being bent both ways. Sometimes I think Jesus looks at me, exasperated, says, Kyle, Kyle. You don't get it, do you? You've missed it. You're running around trying to connect all the dots. I'm here. So we have to slow down and we begin to run life through the Jesus filter instead of the other way around. We sit at his feet and you're a parent or you're a student, you're a, a leader. You feel emptiness. You feel anxiety. You feel like insignificance or exhaustion. And what we need to hear is Martha, Martha, Nick, Nick, Al, Al, Deb, Deb. We need to hear our name in the mouth of Jesus as he says, I love you too much to let this be your life. There's nothing going on with those people. I just picked them at random because I saw them. What's wrong with Al? (laughs) One thing is essential, Jesus says, and Mary's figured it out. I would argue that there are days, these are called Sabbath days maybe, that we put down the phone and we turn off the news, that we get back to fundamentals, that we work on our passing instead of our shooting. Put away the steak and just indulge in the soup, the simplicity. So maybe what I want to invite you to do is take a breath with me, like in your mask, this is going to be fun for you. Take a big deep breath, you'll smell what you have for breakfast, big deep breath. Inhale and let it out. Because I want to tell you, I said this only works if there's mutual submission. You can't have the husband submit to the wife and the wife not submit to the husband or the other way around. That marriage doesn't go real well. It's mutual submission. 
And so if Mary is submitted to Jesus, if, he, if she sits at his feet, she is submitted to him. You own me, Lord. What does that require of that relationship? Jesus submitted first. Jesus submitted first. Jesus submitted the moment he shows up on earth. Jesus has submitted first. Jesus comes down from heaven from the right hand of God and takes on human form and submits himself to our form. Jesus submits himself to the cross, the deepest of loves. He submits himself to the depths, depths that you and I never have to know because Jesus was willing to know them because he knew us. Jesus didn't take the cross for all you could do. Jesus took the cross for you. And that's an important distinction. Jesus didn't take the cross for all that you would do for him. Jesus took the cross for you. Jesus submitted himself fully to you in giving up his life for you. And then the response that he asked for is not to be Martha trying to show him how much we've earned the grace he gives, but instead to be Mary and to submit in return and hear what he's saying and then live out of that. It's not that Mary didn't do anything. Mary didn't just crawl around at his feet. She did. But her doing was based in her being, not her being based in her doing. Does that make sense? We are called to submit to a Christ who first submitted to us. And so knowing that, the question for today becomes, will you submit yourself to Jesus? Maybe the first time, maybe it's just again, maybe you've never heard it put this way and you go, oh, that's a bigger thing than I thought this Christianity really was. But I would like to offer that there's a beauty in it and there's a depth in it and there's a love in it that you've never known before. So maybe this week, I'll give you an exercise, which is ironic. Again, I'll give you something to do in order to maybe be. Next week, we're going to be in Luke chapter 11. The next time I'm up, we're going to work through Luke chapter 11. So maybe for the next few days, you take a few minutes and you just read Luke chapter 11. Just be with Jesus in Luke chapter 11. Just sit at his feet in Luke chapter 11. Maybe take 10 minutes on the first day. Maybe tomorrow you wake up and you take 10 minutes and you read Luke chapter 11. You have a piece of paper laying around, just write what you observe. Write what you see. And then the next day, maybe take 12 minutes or 15 minutes. So Tuesday, you're 15 minutes, same chapter. Take you about two and a half minutes to read it, and you've got a few minutes to sit. And just, what do I see today? What do I observe? What pops out? Jesus, where are you in this? And then 15 minutes, and then 20 minutes, and then 25 minutes, and 30 minutes. And pretty soon... You'll find yourself sitting at his feet. You're sitting with him. You're soaking in him. And you're going, Jesus, what is it today? And by day five, you'll be seeing things that on day one you never saw. And day five, you'll be knowing Jesus in a way you didn't on day one. And so maybe just for the next week or two, it's just Luke chapter 11. That's it. Not Luke chapter 12. Not the commentary that you could go look up to see what does this mean. Not pick up my phone and text this person. I'm doing Luke chapter 11. What are you doing? Just sit at his feet. Exchange doing for Jesus with being with Jesus. And then watch that what you need to do for him will become really clear throughout the day because you've first been with Jesus. You'll begin to see the majesty in the mundane Mondays of life. You'll begin to find joy and wonder in what others see as normal. In sunsets, cool breezes, touch from a friend, the little graces of life become bigger when we're open to understanding what they are. But it requires us to submit ourselves to that process, which means we have to submit ourselves to the king, to the relationship with Jesus. 
And if we do that, we will find ourselves deepening in love like we've never imagined. And then like Mary, you will know what it means to have the good portion. Let's pray.